Hi everyone, welcome back to the Planet podcast. Uh, again, like on every Thursday, uh, we're joined with Alistair Doyle, a former environment correspondent uh, at Reuters, uh, and uh, and me, of course, uh, Alexander Verbeek, your other host for the Thursdays. Um, it's still, it's just now one week ago that we did this kind of strange uh, first podcast uh, while a war was going on, and that was uh, we were looking a week ago a bit for what kind of tone to find. Should we talk about Ukraine or should we uh, talk about environment? And we find a kind of middle way because everything that's happening in Ukraine is ultimately connected to the environment as well because uh, the war of Ukraine is connected to practically every um, file that is uh, on the desks of any policymaker on whatever issue we're talking about. And we focus on environment and nature and wildlife and biodiversity and we focus on uh, everything that has to do with the planet and that's why we're called the planet and um, what what is taking place now in Ukraine is of course also very much connected to energy and energy is connected to climate so I think if if you look for some kind of leitmotif into what we are going to talk about today uh, that might uh, that that might be the issues that that we have on our mind because the the inexcusable invasion of Ukraine is right now causing tragedy and death and it's um, so many lives and futures and hopes of people are lost. Um, we tell, we talk about forty million people and I was saying earlier today to somebody I said when. When we were liberated from Nazism in the Netherlands, you you see those pictures of happy people crowding around those tanks, thanking the liberators, many of them Canadians, where I'm right now. And I haven't seen one single picture like that of any Ukrainian who's happy to see those tanks rolling into their country. So... Um, Putin has put the world at a historic crossroads and looking at it through the lens of, of the Planet podcast, looking through the lens of, of energy, um, will the condemnation of Russia lead to high oil prices? We, we are already above $110 a barrel. That is, that is really, really high. Um, some experts say it might grow another Ten barrels, uh, ten ten um, dollars per barrel. Uh, will the driver shift towards more renewable energy like solar and wind power? And will in that way, um, without ever having it been the aim, but will it help the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement? Or will we see the opposite by spurring many countries now to exploit? domestic oil and gas reserves to replace the Russian supplies. And that could risk pushing up the world dependence on fossil fuels and slowing action to limit warming, global warming to the one and a half degrees. So maybe we'll end up with some kind of dangerous mix of both trends. Some shifts towards renewables. I think that you can clearly hear the call for that already, but also for more fossil fuels and different sources and different flows of fossil fuels. And that will inevitably delay climate action. Yeah, we've, one of the, we've seen a lot of changes in the last week, haven't we? There's been changes in investments, and we've noticed especially how the Western wet oil companies are pulling out of Russia, even ExxonMobil. There's also been a, I read there's a differentiation in the oil price nowadays that it costs more to buy oil on the world markets than it does to buy it from Russia. There's like a 10 or $12 discount if you're willing to take the risk of buying it from Russia because then, of course, it will be your, your refinery might not accept it or your, your ship might be impounded or not allowed to dock. So there's, it's, you know, it's roiling the, the energy markets here. But these, these oil companies pulling out is an interesting story because you know, ExxonMobil has been in Russia since the 1990s as part of after the collapse of the, the end of the cold war when everything opened up and we all thought we could uh, get on together um and, but it, it started to 
reduce operations after Russia seized Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. But it's still, Exxon has got some pretty large oil and gas production facilities on in the far east of Russia on Sakhalin Island. Um, earlier, a few days ago, other oil companies such as BP, Shell, Equinor, which is based here in Norway, where I live, have announced plans to sell their Russian investments. Um, Total Energy, Total of France, has said on Tuesday it's going to not invest more money in Russia, but plans to keep its existing operations and investments. So there's, you know, a hit to Russian exports already. Um, but does that mean we're diversifying away from oil? Not really, you know. Um, there's all sorts of anger about the involvement of any com companies in, in Russia at the moment. Um, France's climate ambassador at the Paris Agreement, Laurence Tubiana, wrote in a tweet that as well as solidarity and grief, as she put it, she had a message of real anger. Uh, and the, to quote her tweet, European energy companies are directly financing this campaign of bombing and killing, she wrote. Strong words. Yeah. Yeah, harsh, harsh words, and and yes, it it is of course uh, money that came from Europe uh, that uh, for 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 the oil and gas, especially the gas of Russia. But at the same time, what we also see now is calls for domestic drilling from the oil industry. So they use this in uh, promoting more drilling of oil. So. Uh, the American Petroleum Institute, so that's a lobby group for the oil industry, they said literally, let's unleash American energy and protect our energy security, quote unquote, which they wrote on, on Twitter. And what they, what they are saying is uh, release permits for energy development on federal lands, issue a U.S. offshore uh, leasing plan for the next five years, accelerate energy infrastructure permitting, uh, and uh, reduce legal and regulatory uncertainty, which I suppose is oil lobby speak for uh, reducing any kind of uh, bothersome <laughs> environmental legislation that will protect nature. So how far will the oil companies that are pulling out of Russia turn around to the governments and say, we did what you wanted to punish Moscow, so now you have to reward us by just letting us drill as much as we can. Yeah, it's going to be a hard one, isn't it? The whole background is, of course, to break Europe's dependence upon Russian oil and gas. We, we, the continent is so dependent upon Russian oil and gas that we need to promote renewables to just to get rid of that. But I noticed also, as you say, the American Petroleum Institute um, it's, the nuclear industry has also jumped onto this uh, bandwagon as well, making a pitch for more support. Uh, the chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Industry Council wrote an op-ed before the invasion saying, in the midst of these dynamics, nuclear energy looks really appealing, that Jeremy Harrell wrote in an op-ed. Um, a new generation of American advanced reactors will make immense contributions to global security, U.S. economic growth and climate action if we let them. Uh, we also saw Emmanuel Macron in France, the president, saying that France, which is very heavily dependent on nuclear energy for its um, energy generation, will be pushing more nuclear investments this, this uh, century last month. Um, of course, you know, the nuclear power doesn't have the carbon emissions of fossil fuels, but, you know, it's got <laughs> other issues. You know, its safety record from Chernobyl to Fukushima and a lack of long-term storage of waste makes it very controversial, even though, you know, it's a much cleaner fuel than um, uh, than oil and gas and coal. If you can keep it keep it um, keep it running. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 cleaner in that sense. So from a, from a climate perspective, uh, there's there's something to say for nuclear. But on the other hand, in promoting it as safe, uh, is not the first thing I would think of. Um, wind <laughs> energy is very safe unless uh, one of those, what do you call that, wings is breaking off when you walk underneath, but I've never heard of anybody <laughs> yeah. having died of, of, of a wind turbine. Haven't uh, they? Not even in the Netherlands? In Germany, but it didn't hit anybody. Really? But, no, yeah, right. so these, these yeah. You see the environmentalists denouncing this, this pro-oil pro and, and nuclear lobbying as, as a cynical uh, self-interest and they say that russia's invasion in ukraine is 
yet another reason to break the dependence on fossil fuels. Prices of solar and wind have tumbled. And unlike the oil prices, they don't go up and down. They are just only going down for years and years in a row already. Um, so that is a very safe bet uh, to now massively invest. And we should have done that much, much earlier for both geopolitical reasons as well as um, for uh, environmental reasons. We should now have a massive push towards uh, renewables. But... Um, yeah, so if you look at, at the brand crude, that is now at 100, I said 110, it's actually, it's already, I, I saw it already at 113, which is uh, the highest uh, for, for the past eight years. Um, and it was just a couple of months ago, it was just 65. So from 65 to 113, that's that's an, an enormous rise of, what is it, 70, 80% or so. Um, and now even uh, Republican presidents have, have spoken of, of breaking off. America's addiction to oil, and, and this is now a golden opportunity uh, to make that step. On the other hand, there's also a question of speed involved, of course. So I can imagine, for instance, for the case with nuclear, that if you have now unused capacity for nuclear, like in Germany, where they were just they just decided a couple of years ago to break away from nuclear for safety reasons, that maybe in their evaluation where they have nuclear at the moment that they are not using because they were in the process of breaking it down that perhaps they would delay that that's something else than building a new nuclear factory so i've i've no idea uh, where that will 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 be going um mm. and then yeah there's of course other impacts of climate change well, ukraine is is a top wheat and corn exporter so will the invasion disrupt this year's uh, plantings and harvest and, and drive up food prices. And that would have a knock-on effect for people that are already suffering hunger and it's linked to global warming, and including some of the most vulnerable people in Africa. Or take a country like Yemen, uh, which is always forgotten in the news. Uh, there's a horrible situation there, massive hunger. And when... Uh, maybe it's not directly the food from Ukraine that's going to Yemen, but all these food markets, they are, they're worldwide interlinked. So if the food prices in one region go up, they go up in other places as well. So ultimately, uh, this will have a, a worldwide knock-on effect uh, on, on food as well. So it's the, the implications of what has been going on in the past seven days uh, are are still extremely difficult to to predict, but that they will be massive worldwide and in and expanding to sectors that you hadn't thought of. That is uh, that is easy to predict, but it's not easy to predict what those impacts will be. It's a bit like in the pandemic when the pandemic started. The we knew that the pandemic would be bad, but we had no idea what what the impact was was going to be. Nobody thought about, for instance. Uh, an effect that people are still uh, will in the future work much more from home even when the pandemic is over so there's all kinds of effects that we had, haven't thought about yet so um, yeah what, what do you yeah. think yeah indeed I mean the unknown effects I was listening to another podcast last week where they were discussing the um, uh, the idea of putting 2% of GDP towards one point, limiting temperatures to 1.5 degrees. 2% 2, 2 for 1.5 could be a, a slogan there. But now, of course, this this invasion means that Western countries are going to be more worried about their defense spending. They'll be spending more money on defense, and then the money for investments in renewable energies could be could be depleted by that. Um but again, we're, you know, we're, it's not just down to big powers and companies, is it, deciding the future of energy markets. Uh, we can all do something to, to save energy. Um, I saw the, the head of the International Energy Agency in The Guardian today was talking about encouraging people to turn down their thermostats at home by one degree. Um, you know, it's not much of a change if you get used to it. Um, you know, we could, all of us, can we, we can start having better insulation in our homes, turn off the electric lights, install heat pumps. If you can have a car, buy an electric one. Um, all sorts of energy savings can can help. And there's a lot of other small lifestyle changes that can help save energy from, you know, shifting to vegetarian diets, as I know you do, Alex, to, to this idea of term, it turning down the thermostat at home. 
Um, a professor I know in Norway, uh, Jürgen Randers, uh, who used to teach at MIT, and I've known him for a while, he, he once suggested at a conference that they, Norway should introduce a sweater police or a, to, <laughs> so that everybody would be obliged when they're indoors in winter to wear a sweater or a pullover or a cardigan or something so that, you know, that meant that you'd already be warm enough at a slightly cooler temperature. Um, he, he said, you know, it would limit heating bills in winter quite substantially. He's got a good point, you know. He, he did say it's sort of a joke, but um, it would be hard to enforce. He did imagine you'd have to send around the police with cameras and looking into people's windows to see that they were wearing a sweater appropriately. But, of course, it would be difficult, you know, somebody just getting out of the shower without a sweater on would be... <laughs> He admitted would be a bit of a difficult one to do. So, you know, he has a serious point there. You know, punish Putin, save energy could be yeah, one of I, our slogans. I, I like the philosophy behind it. So the rallying cry could be punish Putin, wear a sweater. Or something. <laughs> yes. I, can, I can already see a new marketing campaign in, in, in the fashion industry. And in I suppose the sweaters will be in the colors yellow and blue. And, that's a great uh, that's a great business idea a, a thing the national uh, sweater day uh, one day a year i don't know somewhere in the winter where um, and that is exactly that idea that everybody puts down the heating a bit more and puts on a, a, a big uh, a warm sweater uh, for that winter evening and and trying to show that energy use is actually a little bit less uh, that day and, and, and try to make people aware that you also save money uh, by doing so. <laughs> um, we, we had, of course, talking about climate, and since we are looking back at, uh, at, at, at the last week, there was another major climate story that should have been the front page news were it not for uh, the, uh, the war happening in Ukraine, and that is that the, the IPCC report uh, came out and uh, we got what, what the UN Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres called an atlas of human suffering. So the, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel uh, on Climate Change, the IPCC report, which is about impacts of climate change, like floods and droughts and, and heat waves, along with adaptation and vulnerability. And we're facing a planetary collision where the climate crisis affects really everything it harms life on earth every aspect of human society from economics to security from from culture to health and the report looks at the cost for us but also for biodiversity and for the planet and and and, and people in poor nations and if we've done at least to cause the problem the, those that are suffering most so this report is written by 270 authors from 67 countries and is approved by all governments. So most people read only the summary, which is about 35 pages, but the full report is nearly 4,000 pages. Uh, nobody's going to read the whole report, but it's <laughs> great to know that on the website of uh, ipcc.ch, um, you can just approach it and you can search for certain sections and it's um, it's not as easy reading as a newspaper, but it's not as difficult, so at least some of those articles, uh, that you you, do, you don't have to study first five years of, of climate science before you can understand it. So this is the second part of this mammoth four-part assessment of climate change. So the first one uh, was last year. That's about the basics of climate science. And you can, you'll probably remember that people then spoke about the code red for humanity. And this is the second part. The third part will be published in early April, and that is about solutions for the crisis. Um, and by that time, we have so many crises that we uh, need a lot of solutions, and the climate is just one of them, unfortunately. Um, the fourth and last one will be in September. So that is the summary that wraps it all up together, which is nicely timed because in November uh, we will have the all-important uh, COP27, uh, which should have been a highlight in the news of this year, but as things are developing, uh, I'm not sure if uh, COP27 will by that time get the attention that it should get, uh, not only in the media, but also by 
the world's leaders uh, that should finally um, uh, commit to higher ambitions to solve the climate crisis. So um, Guterres' remarks about the report are really extraordinary. So he called it a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. This is the Secretary General of the United Nations speaking. He says nearly half of humanity is living in a danger zone now and many ecosystems are at the point of no return now. And the abdication of leadership is criminal. So these are these are words spoken by the Secretary General of the United Nations, who's basically representing all the nations in the world, is saying the abdication of leadership is criminal. I mean, this man really understands how serious the situation is. And Guterres called for an end to the use of coal and really shift to renewables. And he says fossil fuels are a dead end for our planet, for humanity, and yes, also for economies. Yeah, Guterres' speech was stunning. I mean, I've covered the IPCC at Reuters with my previous job. I covered the previous round of reports in 2013, 14, and the one before that in 2007, um, I guess, when they came out. And, you know, never have I seen somebody, the Secretary General of the United Nations, coming out blazing quite as loudly and as angrily as this. Um, and as you said, this would normally be on the front page of every newspaper in the world. Um, even uh, newspapers that cover this story um, in extremely closely, like The Guardian or The New York Times, had it way down their pages. The BBC, too, you know, they're way down the page, way down the news. Um, and as you're saying, you know, you can read this, you can read this report, but it's still a bit confusing, so I find it. It's not, you know, you, you don't need a... a doctorate in um, climate science to understand it but there's an awful lot of backroom negotiating between countries to get the words um, onto the page you know because it, that's because it's got to be it's not just scientists who are sitting there approving it but governments as well so it's got to be a, approved by governments ranging from Russia and OPEC countries who are dependent on their oil exports to the small island states who are forced to import energy or use solar power and who are being swamped by sea level rise. So, you know, when I, I look through the 35-page summary, it doesn't even mention coal, oil, or natural gas, or fossil fuels, which are at the very heart of this problem. You know, as, as a summary for policymakers, it's pretty, it's a pretty big oversight, not to mention what's causing, causing uh, global warming. Uh, it does have the word renewables once, and it does mention wind, solar, and small-scale hydroelectric also just once in the 35 pages in a section about energy generation diversification. You know, you've got to read between the lines, between the letters there to discover what diversification from what means. And, of course, it means from fossil, fossil fuels, um, which just seems inexcusable to me. Even the COP26 declaration included the words coal for for the first time um last year but the, the 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 whole root cause of global warming has been omitted from a lot of these of these reports coal is mentioned in other sections of this report but the summary for policymakers the thing that if anybody's going to read anything they'll read that doesn't include these these key words um and I don't, re reading through the report, um, maybe the most striking phrases were at the very, very end of it. The last, the concluding phrases, I thought, were the ones that stuck out most for me. And I'll read this out. It says, climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health. Any further delay in concerted, anticipatory global action on adaptation and mitigation will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. Now, that's quite complicated words, but it's it's basically saying we're to blame for this mess. It's harming us. We're fast running out of time. But there's still this window of opportunity to act. It's not too late yet. So there's, there's this sliver of optimism there at the end of this report that, yeah, you know, we get to grips with this right now and maybe we can solve it. Yeah, that's... It's incredible that uh, the report that all the countries in the world, together with scientists, bring out that it has a summary of 35 pages and it doesn't mention words or like, like oil or coal or gas or 
something like that. I mean, it would be like the World Health Organization producing a report about the pandemic. And it doesn't use the word COVID or it doesn't <laughs> use the word health or people dying or those kind of words. Um, and you still have two puzzles for the pieces of what it is. And that makes that if you go to the real report, which is those 4,000 pages, there you come to stuff that is really written by scientists without, you know, guys like me, diplomats or former diplomats that put their <laughs> fingers on it and have to find some kind of kind of agreement uh, between all of them. I can tell you that's, that's it's painful to do those negotiations, um, although I still am a true believer in multilateral diplomacy. And I think that the positive thing of the report is, uh, there is a bit of positive thing in a report, that is that the scientists stress that it is not completely doom and gloom. We can still fix this, but we got to act now. And that is very much also in line with the recent interview that I had with, with the climate scientist Michael E. Mann. He says the very same thing. He says, yes, it is bad. Yes, it is going to get much better, uh, much worse if we if we don't do anything about this. But the good news is we know that if we act, we can actually make it better. But it is a window that is closing. So that is not a luxury that... Uh, that will be waiting for us until we've solved all our o other problems in the world. And that's why it's so painful that now, after the pandemic, that we couldn't really help for developing. There's a little bit of human human imp reasons why we had a pandemic or why the frequency increases. But now we have a crisis that is so deliberate and so unnecessary and so difficult to understand, which also uh, detracts our attention uh, from 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 this uh, thing. So I wrote a couple of days ago about the risk of ever-increasing compounding crisis, where the one crisis makes the other one worse. And it seems that we are now in, in the perfect storm of the Ukraine crisis that came on top of the pandemic crisis and that both make that the world leaders are distracted from the threat of climate change we we can no longer wait if if you don't pay attention to a non-urgent existential existential threat it's just a matter of time until it becomes both urgent and existential and that is the point mm. where we have arrived now and i've been looking at the main points in the ipcc report it is bleak it is very bleak but i know all listeners focus on the ukraine crisis now so so let, let me just pick a few of the IPCC conclusions because I can well understand that I know that the people that listen to this podcast care a lot about environment, but I would be highly surprised if not all of you would care really, really a lot about what is going in Ukraine. I can understand that you've been reading that news. Um, so let's 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 take a few of the conclusions here. So first, um, there's no inhabited region in the world that is escaping the dire impacts from rising temperatures and increasingly extreme weather you can't escape this is going to wherever you are listening uh, it is going to hit you as well and then about half of the global population that is between 3.3 and 3.6 billion people they live in areas that are highly vulnerable to climate change they are going to be hit first and they are going to be hit worse than other people then Millions of people face food and water shortages owing to climate change, even at the current levels of heating. And as we concluded just 10 minutes ago, it might get worse actually now uh, with, with the new crisis that we have on top of this because uh, Ukraine was always the, the kind of breadbasket for the world or at least for the former Soviet Union. Then... Uh, Mass die-offs already on their way. Trees and and or think for instance about the coral in the ocean. And the the report also says the one and a half Celsius above pre-industrial levels constitutes a critical level beyond which the impacts of the climate crisis accelerate strongly, and some become irreversible another warning that is one and a half is really really the limit once we pass it we, we're we're star trek would say we boldly go where no one has ever gone before and we don't want to go there 
So coastal areas um, around the globe, so the, the small and low-lying islands, they face inundation and, and temperature rises of, of more than one and a half Celsius. Um, it says that key ecosystems are losing their ability to absorb carbon dioxide. So what you get is that um, major rainforests, for instance, are uh, no longer carbon sinks that absorb carbon but they become a source of carbon uh, so that is a very worrying development as well and the last one i would like to mention is that some countries have agreed to conserve 30 percent of the land on earth uh, but the scientists advise that it should be about half it should be 50 percent uh, to restore the ability of natural ecosystems to cope with the damage that's wrecked on them but the report says that it's less than 15% of the world's land, not the aimed for 30%, and 21% of the freshwater and just 8% of the oceans that are under some form of protection. So we aim for 30%, we do only 15%, but the scientists say we should cover 50%, 50. Um, so we're far off from, from where we should be. Yeah, let's see what happens. There's a big uh, biodiversity conference coming up in China later this year, isn't there, where they're going to be setting that goal. The, the, so far, the goal is for 30 by 30, 30% 30 by 2030, um, up from those lagging numbers at the moment. But uh, as you say, the, the report says maybe we have to go to 50%, 50% of the planet is an awful lot. One thing that struck me too is this very, uh, very nasty and worrying word, overshoot appears in this report it's been in some reports but it wasn't in the same section of the ipcc report um the last time around in 2014 now overshoot is the idea that we could exceed the temperature goals in this case 1.5 or even two degrees and somehow bring it back down again by by the end of the century that might be done by planting massive amounts of trees that suck carbon out of the atmosphere to grow or, or using some sort of industrial processes to suck carbon out of the air and bury it. Now, many environmentalists, of course, say that's this overshoot idea is a dangerous recipe for inaction. It kicks the problem down the road um, when the UN says we have to almost halve emissions this decade alone to get on track to limit warming to 1.5. So overshoot um, is mentioned i think it was 17 times in the report um, but still this report does make it clear that there are massive risks for overshoot um, it says that if you go over it you could reach tipping points for example irreversible impacts irreversible is a word that's also used quite frequently in this in this report referring to extinctions of species there have been three i think at least documented extinctions of species including I think the Costa Rican golden toad that is no longer uh, with us because of climate change in, in the mountains of Costa Rica and there in Central America. But it talks about this overshoot, the risk brings that along, uh, the, raises the risk, for example, of the collapse of uh, ice sheets in Antarctica or Greenland or a rapid melt of, um, you know, you could you could get rid of sea ice in the Arctic Ocean and that would expose darker ocean water that would again accelerate warming and the melt of permafrost and have all these cascading effects that the, the report warns about, that everything is interconnected. Something goes wrong in one part of the system and it's going to start cascading through to the rest of human societies and uh, species on the planet. So it's a grim, it was a pretty grim report altogether the IPC with these slivers of hope here and there that we can still fix it. Yeah, you always wonder if, suppose somebody would have sent you away with a rocket to the moon or so 50 years ago and you would come back on Earth and, and look around and say, hey guys, what, what's been happening here in the past 50 years? And then uh, people would tell you, well, this is going on, this is going on. And by the way, we have here this report of the IPCC and you would read it. It's like, why isn't everybody alarmed? This is this is the future of our life on this planet, the only planet that we have. 
The best scientists in the world are warning us. They've been proven over and over again every year that what they predict is happening. It is, it is a relatively easy system to understand. The only miscalculation they made was that the system is more dynamic than they than they thought. So they had underestimated the effect a little bit. Why isn't the world taking more action? And that is, so this is just a, such an, an, a worldwide failure of leadership that we're witnessing. And talking about leadership... This was, of course, not only the week of uh, the brutal invasion in Ukraine and the publication of um, the, the second part of the IPCC report, of which the last one was about five, six, seven years ago, um, uh, so which was so much worse now, but we also had the State of the Union of uh, President Joe Biden, who has been now in office a little bit more uh, than one year. And... Of course, he also had to rewrite uh, his speech. He had to focus on Ukraine. He started with Ukraine. Um, he stressed the Western unity in, in the face of Russia. And he, uh, he, 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 there was a lot to focus on the domestic agenda and the pandemic in the run-up to these uh, midterm elections in November. And that process was already a little bit starting now uh, with, with the first kind of moves that are taking place in Texas. So climate change hasn't often figured large in these speeches. So he mentioned it now only twice, which is for the historically most polluting country in on the planet and per capita still among amongst the most polluting countries on the planet it's the second biggest polluter in absolute terms in uh, greenhouse gases if the leader of the free world is speaking in a one-hour speech and mentions the biggest existential risk of our planet only twice in a kind of byline um, that is not very much so uh, he he twice spoke about it in one section he said uh, we will create good jobs for millions of Americans um, in infrastructure, modernizing the roads and airports and ports and waterways all across America. Um, and then he added, we will do it all to withstand the devastating effects of climate change and promote environmental justice. So he mentioned climate in the context of uh, infrastructure and in another one, he set out to go uh, to cut energy costs for families, an average $500 a year, by combating climate change. So in both cases, it was about climate change, yes, but it was also connected to other um, popular things like improving infrastructure and, and reducing energy costs uh, for families, which is, by the way, difficult now that... Um, uh, the fossil fuel prices are soaring and at a time of an uh, extremely high inflation as we haven't seen for, for decades. So he urged, for instance, tax credits for energy efficiency and to double uh, the U.S. Uh, clean energy production, which is, uh, which is a very positive news, of course. Um, cutting prices of electric cars and, and setting up new charging points uh, for which I would clap had I been sitting in the audience, which I was not because I'm not an American. I'm always fascinated by country and following it. Alistair, what's your take here? <laughs> the United States is a fascinating place. I love it too. Um, I lived there for a year, 10 years ago. Um, uh, so it's a fun place to be. But uh, like you say, two mentions of climate change in a State of the Union address isn't much for what's an existential threat. You know, you contrast what Joe Biden said the tone of what he says about climate change there, which is focused on very much on the, the benefits of what he's doing to, to solve the climate crisis and what um, Antonio Guterres said in, about the IPCC, which he called a, an atlas of human suffering and said that the, the abdication of leadership is criminal. And of course, you know, the United States, the world's biggest economy, the world's most powerful country must feel itself a bit lashed by those sort of words, you know, the abdication of leadership, um, which the United States has, has not been able to show. It's been torpedoed by Republican opposition through many years of to, on acting on climate change. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, two mentions, um, climate change doesn't often get a lot of attention in many State of the Union addresses. 
I don't think Donald Trump talked about it much except to boast about how he was pulling out of the Paris Agreement. Uh, climate change was first explicitly included in 1997 by President Bill Clinton. Um, he said, we must also protect our global environment, working to ban the worst toxic, toxic chemicals and to reduce the greenhouse gases that channel, challenge our health even as they change our climate. So that's the first reference to climate change directly in uh, 1997. Sorry, That year, of course, was the year of the Kyoto Protocol, the UN's uh, plan at the time for reducing greenhouse gas emissions by developed countries. Um, the Clinton administration was one of the driving forces behind negotiating, getting the Kyoto Protocol into place. It set you know, an average of 5% cuts over, you know, by the year 2012. Um, from 1990 levels uh, for developed countries, but but it, it you know Clinton administration promoted it, um, agreed it, signed it even, but never submitted it to the Senate for ratification, knowing it would never go through. Um, and his successor George W. Bush abandoned it, which was no surprise, of course. And <laughs> yeah, so far the president that gave most attention to climate. Uh, climate change was, of course, a Democrat, uh, and that was Barack Obama. And Obama said in 2015 in his State of the Union, that was just uh, months before the Paris Agreement was adopted, and he said, no challenge, no challenge poses a greater threat to the future generations than climate change. And in 2016, a year later, Obama mentioned climate change four times after the Paris Agreement was adopted, hailing it as, and I quote here, the most ambitious agreement in history to fight climate change. And that would help vulnerable countries, but it would also protect our kids. Um, Republican presidents haven't focused attention on climate change. Uh, Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Uh, as you said, he described it as a hoax, a Chinese hoax, I think was the words that he used. And uh, let's uh, not forget that this is the very same Donald Trump that called Putin a genius. Uh, mm -hmm. Trump made that remark recently uh, during an interview that was just last week uh, with the conservative podcaster Buck Sexton. And since this was trending today on Twitter, I thought I, I look up the source of, of all this. What did he now really say? Because he's today denying that he said it. And he is saying that it's uh, fake news that is spreading this story. So they literally... The quote that he said was in typical Trumpian style. He said, quote, I went in yesterday and there was a television screen and I said, uh, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of Ukraine, of the Ukraine, and then he corrected himself of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that is wonderful. This was what Trump said. And then he goes on. I said, how smart is that? <laughs> the <four> um, <coughs> and... He's going to go in to be a peacekeeper. That is the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen, he says admiringly. And then he continues, there were more army tanks than I've seen. They're going to keep peace all right. No, uh, but I think of it, um, he's a guy who's very savvy. So, of course, uh, we should not forget he called himself a stable genius, while he left that stability part out of Putin, whom he calls simply a genius. So I spoke about the perfect storm of the pandemic and Ukraine and the climate crisis, but it's also a crisis of leadership. And that is in the very top of American politics. Putin is called a peacekeeper. He's out of politics officially now, but he's still the leader of the other main party in America. So, um, I'm drifting wow. away from environment here. I think we should talk about plastics. Um, Indeed. Let's, let's hope that Donald Trump doesn't give an, another State of the Union address in whenever 2025. <laughs> but yeah, plastics. Let's move on to something a bit brighter than the grim news we've been talking about so far, the, so far on this podcast. There was at least one good news story about the environment um, this week because governments agreed yesterday to launch talks on a treaty to regulate plastics. 
They've agreed to get it negotiated by all countries by the end of 2024. So this will end the scourge, or not end the scourge, but be a way of starting to end the scourge of plastics that are disrupting nature and polluting the oceans. Now, the UN Environment Programme hosted these talks among 175 nations in Nairobi, uh, and the UN hailed it as a historic day in the campaign to beat plastic pollution. Norway's Minister for Climate and the Environment, Espen Barteide, who presided, presided at the talk, said, and I quote, plastic pollution has grown into an epidemic. With today's resolution, we're officially on track for a cure. So there we are. He's leaving linking the, the themes of the pandemic to, to beating this, this scourge. Yeah, so that's positive news. It, it's been hailed as, as the most important vaccine since the Paris Agreement in 2015. So, uh, which, which, of course, as we all know, set, set the goals to, to limit climate change, so especially... Especially these single-use plastics, they are poisoning nature and, and the oceans. And uh, it, uh, some 11 million tons of plastic waste flow annually into the oceans. So this may triple, actually, by 2040, and that's less far away than you think. It's just 18 years. So 9% of all the plastic waste that has ever been produced has been recycled. Um, about 12% has been incinerated. So the remainder has finished up in landfills, in dumps of, of the environment, uh, according uh, UNEP. So that's about 80% of all plastic ever produced. And one report estimated that plastic will weigh more than all the fish in the oceans by 2050. So in, in just 30 years from now, there will be literally more plastic in the ocean than fish. And quite a bit of that plastic will actually be in the fish. And when the fish goes into you, the plastic goes into you as well. So that's something about fish eating. Uh, you already mentioned that I'm a vegetarian. So now there's about uh, 5.25 yeah. trillion macro and micro pieces of plastic in our ocean. And uh, to make that a little bit more understandable, if you take a square mile of ocean, there is now nearly 50,000 pieces uh, of of macro and micro pieces in that ocean, and altogether, that weighs uh, close to 270,000 ton. And every day, about eight million pieces of plastic uh, make their way into the oceans. The ocean is like one big sewer, but nobody is cleaning up the sewer. And now we have plastic even at. Uh, the, the, the most unreachable places of the world, they found uh, pieces of plastic at the bottom of uh, the Mariana Trench, which is 11 kilometers deep or something. Um, it's, it's literally everywhere. It's everywhere in our environment. And uh, um, if you like these podcasts and if you're worried about plastic, then please join us again. We are not at the end of the podcast, by the way, but I just got this brainwave of promoting my ne next podcast here, <laughs> uh, which is on Monday. I'm not sure of the time, but then we will have back in this podcast, uh, Tom Gamach, who you might remember, um, who spoke with us about uh, his hopes of reaching a negotiation agreement for a plastic treaty. Um, he then promised to be back in the show uh, once uh, that, uh, that that has been achieved. So we, we have the negotiation mandate now. So he will tell us all the uh, ins and outs um, about uh, the, the plastic treaty negotiations. He was uh, present there. That's great. Yeah, that'll be really interesting to hear the ins and outs of that. There were several proposals, weren't there? There was a, a stricter proposal from uh, Peru and Rwanda that was uh, the toughest one that was on the table there. There was a a rival proposal from Japan. There was another one from India, which was pretty much talking about just voluntary measures. But um, they've come up with something at least, you know, that the details are going to be filled in on this, on this, uh, on these all ideas. It's just a, the idea about regulating plastics and what are you going to do about improving circularity. And there's, of course, you know, the plastic producers who are making money from selling these things are likely to resist any treaty. Um, it's going to be a threat to their business. And can you impose a, a global system for plastics? I don't know. You know, it's going to be, is it going to be up to national plans? Like uh, some people say it could be a bit like the Paris Agreement where we have, everybody has their own nationally determined plan basically to do what they want. 
towards a common goal to reduce um, plastics. And again, you know, we, 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 we have to, as consumers, I think we can do more as well. You know, I walk down the supermarkets uh, to here in Oslo where I live and um, on, the, on the shelves of the supermarket in recent years, you know, the peppers, the cucumbers, the eggplants, the apples that were lying around just a few loose on the, on the, on the, on the, on the just a few years ago, many of them would get individually wrapped in plastic. Of course, you have to take that off and you just throw it away. It never gets used again. It probably won't be recycled, though we do have a recycling system here. So plastic's everywhere. You know, the detail of this, these negotiations that they hope to get done by the end of 2024 are really going to be in the details. But hooray, they've done it. They've done it. They've got... They sh- they fired the start of this this process. Um, actually, last week at the beginning of last week, I met with the Norwegian minister who was present- presiding uh, before he left for the talks, and he said increased circularity is the main point. You need to design products for being recycled. You actually need to collect them, you need to recycle them, and you need to put the priority on the recycled product in the end. So he says if plastic is a product that is normally recycled. There's not much of a problem any longer. Here in Oslo, you have collection points, as many countries do now, for um, plastic bottles. Um, You pay a deposit for a plastic bottle, and here in Norway, you're paying uh, three krona or so. That's um, 30 cents, I guess, in US cents. Um, uh, No, sorry, that's $3, isn't it? Um, Sorry, $3 roughly for a bottle just for the recycling fee. And you, that encourages you to take it back to the shop for recycling. It's a penalty if you throw it away in the trash. I remember in, in Ireland they introduced a couple of years ago that you had to pay only five cents for any plastic bag that you take from the supermarkets. And that had a massive effect. In, instead of something like 250 plastic bags per person per year, they went down to only five or something just for those silly five cents. So you need only a very small incentive to make people a bit more aware of what's going on i also read in echo watch actually, actually alex sorry got it just just I, I got my conversions wrong it is actually 30 cents not three dollars i'm sorry okay okay yeah, so <laughs> anyway it's still a, it's yeah, still so a penalty so, right yeah same same point actually you don't you don't need uh, that much to to convince people to change their behavior which is also a bit of a of a sad uh, thing to realize that people see how damaging plastic is in the environment but don't change their behavior at all and then suddenly they can earn five cents and then suddenly they're they're going to to uh to change their behavior it's it's a strange world but there's all proof to point that you can do a lot in people's behavior by changing prices now that the um, energy prices are booming so much it will be very interesting to see if people are really going to wear more blue and yellow sweaters uh, with all kinds of text on it. So I read in, in Echo Watch uh, just, just like an hour ago, just before we started, um, they published a recent study that was done by the British Waste Reduction um, Nonprofit, which has the wonderful acronym RAP, the Waste and Resources Action Program. And they're all about wrapping things in plastic. So they did an 18 months study and they found that plastic packaging for fresh fruit and vegetable actually increases food waste and the study also found that wrapping produced in plastic does not increase their shelf life and that packaging often forces shoppers to buy more than is needed and i think a pretty bad example that i sometimes see is that they put like six bananas in a plastic bag. Well, the the beautiful thing of a banana is that it is very well, at least the part that you want to eat, is very well protected by the skin of the banana. You don't need plastic around it. So first they use plastic and then they force you to buy six bananas when you want only three bananas. So that has a risk that people are going to throw food away. And another risk that they warn for is these best before labels which makes good sense if you, let's say, have um, a tin uh, with food in it and you cannot see the food. But if I have a banana in my hand, I know perfectly well whether I can eat it or not. Uh, Nor would I really get sick if I would eat it if it's not fresh anymore. It's just not very tasty anymore. I don't need a warning that is saying you have to throw this away in three days because a lot of people are throwing away perfectly good bananas and then go back to buy a new plastic bag full of bananas. So 
right that uh, this uh, this NGO is um, is is uh, getting getting active on on this field, and uh, they uh, they just want to the, the removal of all kinds of unnecessary single use plastics under the UK Plastics Act and. Uh, that doesn't only have to be about fruit and vegetables on what they focused on now, but uh, their next uh, target that they're going to focus on is is uh, canned food and and sauce packets uh, used in restaurants, uh, for instance. And that's that's another one. Why in a restaurant should you get sauce packed in a piece of plastic instead of that there's just a bottle with whatever your tomato ketchup or whatever is uh, is in there. Yeah, that's an interesting study, wasn't it? And they, you know, they they, they did experiments with uh, storing broccoli, potatoes, apples, bananas, and cucumbers at different temperatures, both in the packaging and without. And uh, one of the studies was to to they found that packaging wasn't as important as people being able to buy the correct amount of food and store it. You know, the, one of the quotes here was that we found that storing food in the fridge at below five degrees gave days, weeks, and in the case of apples, months more quality product life. Um, they discovered that, um, you know, there you put it in the fridge, you cool it down a bit, and you're, you're saving. Of course, the fridge <laughs> takes electricity, so that's a cost as well. Um, so, you know, the plastic packaging itself made little difference to the shelf lives. So, you know, and they come up with some pretty alarming numbers here in this study where they discovered that 10,300 tons of plastic are wasted along with about 100,000 tons of food each year due to plastic packaging and use-by dates. So that's equivalent to 14 million shopping baskets worth, worth of food they, they figured out. That's an, awful, that's an awful lot of food, isn't it? It's terrible. Um, and about a third of greenhouse gases in the UK are linked to food and drink. Um, so they just reckon that you know removing the packaging and the labels would stop the circulation of 1,100 garbage trucks worth of plastics. Um, so there's huge things, and that's, this is just a study that's done in the UK. You know, imagine if you if we multiply that around the world to everywhere where people are, are using plastic. I mean, you just have to look around you wherever you are. I suspect. Pretty much everything that you're looking at is plastic. I'm sitting on a plastic chair. I'm looking at a you know, plastic table. It's got um, plastic is everywhere around us nowadays, isn't it? And yet, just a couple of generations ago, I suspect that um, houses were pretty much empty of plastics. Let's get back to having wooden chairs, hey? Yeah, it feels nicer too. It's uh, we're by the way coming more or less to the end. So if if people have questions, just uh, press on the on the call in uh, button. But I remember when I was a couple of years ago, I was, I was following the Colorado River and doing a um, uh, kind, of, kind of road trip in, in the U.S. And I stayed in those kind of typical American motels next to the road. And every morning we had breakfast without any single exception. The plates of food, the cutlery, the cup you were drinking from, all of that was of plastic and was then thrown away and and. I several times asked the owner, like, why don't you have, like, normal cutlery? They said, well, we don't have a kitchen to clean that. And it's like, <laughs> why don't you? You're a hotel. Why don't, you, why don't you have a kitchen? And it was just such an absolute waste of plastic every day. And it's, it's just ingrained in the culture. And it's that is something that I don't know from Europe. You wouldn't see this, and people would, would, would protest around it. So I see quite a quite a bit of a, a positive uh, thing in, in, in Europe that we didn't go that far in our plastic use. Um, but it's, of course, in, in any culture, it's it's uh, it's ingrained. I think uh, about half or so of all the plastic that ends up in the oceans is only six countries, mainly in, in East and Southeast Asia, that, uh, that produce all this. So, um, yeah. yeah, so that's... Um, we are... Oh, wow, it's we've run over time. So we? yeah, uh, it's it's time to stop un unless people have anything that they want to uh, to bring. In. We have uh, other things to we've come uh, for for today. Looking back at last week, we've come kind of full circle next week. I don't know. We've come sort of full circle, haven't we? Plastics. If we reduce uses of plastics, 
we're also helping Ukraine in a way, aren't we? Because uh, the plastics come from um, the use of uh, it's uh, from hydrocarbons. Um, there's a, a, a loop there back to oil and gas production, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, brings it all the way back. So we yep. did a we did a full full loop. Um, I uh, would like to thank you, of course, always, Alastair, for 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 being here. Uh, we'll be back here next week, uh, same time, same place, and uh, we hope to see all of you again. Uh, thank you for listening, all of you that stayed here the full hour. And I hope to see all of you back uh, next week uh, on Thursday, but also on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, so just uh, stay tuned uh, to, to call in uh, to see when the next ones are coming up. and um, uh, Or you can follow it on Twitter. I wish you all, we're not yet in the weekend. I want to wish you all a, a happy weekend. And uh, let's hope for better times uh, to, uh, to live in soon and uh, for a better better world. Uh, because that's what the planet is all about. Okay. Great. Stopping Thanks, here. everybody. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bye. Alex. Bye.